0: Chapter 63 In October 1935, Mussolini's Grand Army crossed the border into Abyssinia. This land had been independent since the days of King Solomon. It was the only African country to successfully resist European invasion in the 19th century. The Italians had modern airplanes, tanks, and flamethrowers. The Abyssinians had war drums, camels and twelve obsolete biplanes. The Italians used poison gas and bombed Red Cross hospitals. The League of Nations applied some sanctions, but not enough to stop the war. The British let oil and coal sail through the British-controlled Suez Canal. The French sold oil to the Italians. The League forbade arms sales to either side. The Abyssinians were slaughtered. Cuthbert was outraged. It was the first time any of his employees had seen him anything other than bored and distemperate. It made them all panic. Each of them ran around feeling the weight of the Abyssinian crisis as if he had been directly responsible for it. Cuthbert acted as if he had been against the League of Nations from the start but had been overruled by his underlings and now had the full magisterial right of a man who had given good but unheeded advice. The truth was that the F.O. was in quite a bind, and Cuthbert felt it most keenly. Throughout his career, he had been in the position of unequalled expert. His detailed knowledge was consulted, deferred to, sought after, and never questioned. His position was a kind of weapon. His heavy, bludgeoning personality saw that it never went unused. But now, things were crawling out into the open. The British public, largely due to propaganda coming out of the FO, were almost fetishistically enamoured of the League of Nations. The League of Nations served Cuthbert perfectly because he could blame the other members if a British initiative failed and take personal credit if something succeeded. The greatest engine of the mortal world is the drive to avoid responsibility and fuel vanity. The League of Nations was popular with the people because it served the vanities of the leaders. Cuthbert was in a very privileged position, and this position was directly threatened by Mussolini. He was the chief civil servant under Samuel Hoare, the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. Cuthbert had seen quite a few ministers stumble through the F.O. It did not tend to attend the best and brightest, and had loved them all. They had the microphones and interviews, but spoke little but what Cuthbert wanted them to say. The word democracy always made him smile. Ministers who went against the policy of the civil service, surely a more permanent and skilled layer, found unpleasant information leaked to the newspapers or were given poor advice which got them kicked out. In the palaces of power, the civil service were neither king, queen, or courtier, but oxygen, an invisible, unfelt substance on which all pomp and power depended. Being a great civil servant required two things, according to Cuthbert. One had to be very certain and very patient. The great virtue of the civil service, he would say, is that we are not subject to the vagaries of public opinion. We are the ballast of the ship of state. He was not a great fan of democracy, except in so far as the illusion of participation created the moral requirement of obedience. They vote in the figureheads, he smiled and we tell them what to do. If they succeed, they preen. If not, they leave. But we remain. We always remain. But Mussolini had done something which threatened to blow the lid off the whole scheme. If the League of Nations was revealed as useless... Then the FO would inherit the whole European mess, a mess which had been created directly through its faith in the League of Nations. If we had taken the reins in 1925, after Locarno, he thought, we'd have the dictators well under heel by now. But the public and politicians wanted the League, and so we went along. And now, that the League has proven itself useless. We are supposed to clean up their goddamned mess. His was a rage without bottom. He called a meeting with Reginald. Reginald knew, going in, that nothing productive would come out of it except the draining of some of his boss's venom. All right... "'said Cuthbert, pacing back and forth in front of his desk, an unprecedented activity. "'We have this rogue Italian on our hands, and he is spoiling our day by gassing the wogs. "'The League of Nations is all uh, a-flutter, but you and I both know that it will come to nothing. "'It is a posturing, vain organization, as I have always said.' So the shit is going to land all over us. We'll have to come up with a credible position for the press, the people. What do you think? I think we should reaffirm our faith in the League, right? Why? Because if we back away from the League now, people will ask why. If we say, because the League is unable to handle the aggression of one of its members, then they'll say, why didn't you figure that out when it was unable to deal with the Japanese in Manchuria? Yes, we have good reasons, but the Horde never understands them. So we have to keep our shoulders behind the League. We can do that, but we can't really leave everything to the League. "'You know, when the Abyssinians capture an Italian, they tend to castrate him? "'I'm not too pleased with the company we have to keep. "'But foreign policy is all about holding your nose. "'So here we go.' "'Reginald shrugged. "'So we have to wage a two-front war?' "'Yes. "'Publicly support the League.' "'Privately try to work something out between the Wogs and the ITs. "'And, when we've done it, bring it to the League for ratification.' "'Cuthbert laughed. (laughs) "'Nice touch. "'We support the group, but can also act as concerned individuals. "'We share our successes. "'Very nice.' "'Well,' said Reginald, "'we can't share this one.' Cuthbert paused in one of his turns. "'No. No. Damn it. "'That such great ideas should never see the light of—' "'We'll have to get Sam to do it. Will he do it?' "'Cuthbert waves his hand. "'Oh, they all want to leave their mark. "'They're not comfortable toiling in obscurity. That's our virtue.' "'He'll get it going. I'll talk to him.' "'Reginald paused. "'His conscience prickled queasily like a rolling hedgehog. "'There is one other possibility. What's that?' "'Close the Suez Canal.' "'Cuthbert paused. "'Sam can't do that. "'No, but he can recommend it. "'No Suez, no oil, no coal. "'Mussolini's army would grind to halt within a week.' What if he goes to Hitler? Well, just from a devil's advocate position, what if he does? Is that going to be any more dangerous than Hitler seeing that we can't do a damn thing to stop aggression? That the League of Nations is a dead duck? And Hitler and Mussolini are very suspicious of each other. It's unlikely. Hmm. Interesting. But it doesn't solve the problem of acting against the League. It's a de facto economic sanction. Reginald smiled. We dynamite it. What? Or disable the Suez in some other way. Everyone will know what's going on, but we'll have an ironclad cover story. We save the league. We save face. We stop. Mussolini. That's... (laughs) Cuthbert laughed suddenly. Why? I think. "'That is inspired. Give me a moment.' He walked back and forth a few times. Reginald watched him closely. Finally, Cuthbert turned and said, "'No. Why? Too risky. "'If Mussolini goes to Hitler, we'll still be blamed. "'What if we do too much damage to the Suez, not to mention the lost income?' and we'd need some kind of cover story for the explosion, or whatever it was. That would have holes, and the private companies would have to be bought off. Too traceable, like all radical solutions. Inspired, my boy, don't get me wrong, but impractical. Still, hats off. Reginald looked up, his conscience sank back down, regretfully. Well, he smiled. I tried, at least. Cuthbert returned his smile, then scowled, went to his desk, and threw an envelope at Reginald. Oh, and listen, could you arrange an interview for this little fool? Reginald glanced at the return address, then laughed sharply. Oh, good God, no. You know him? We went to school together. You remember that Oxford debate last year? He was supposed to be my opponent, but gave it up for my brother. Yes, just... "'Handle it, please. It's his fifth letter, and you need an assistant. "'You might have considerable travel, in short order, "'and I'm not letting you get behind on your paperwork.' "'It's too silly,' mused Reginald. "'He must know how I feel.' "'Oh, put that all behind you. "'He has a master's. He speaks French. "'If you don't talk to him, I will.' "'Sure, all right.' "'I will,' murmured Reginald, tapping the envelope against his chin. Samuel Hoare, the Foreign Secretary, and Cuthbert met in a private room at Sam's Club at eight o'clock that evening. Because a political crisis was at hand, the air was blue with smoke. Silent waiters left eddies of air in their wake. Old men sat hunched forward in ungainly positions, their faces red, their bellies pressing against their thighs.' Everyone over eight. Manners were forgotten. Pâté showed against the gum lines of snarling mouths. The great camouflage of the political animal appearance was being exposed by the growing reality of incompetence. Surveying the room, Cuthbert remembered a sentence from a terrible essay he had marked as a professor's assistant many years before. The sacred cows were coming home to roost with a vengeance. Indeed. As they spoke, Cuthbert noticed with pleasure that Sam was in the perfect frame of mind. He seemed irritated at Mussolini, as if Mussolini were acting against him personally. How strange that he should be bothered, thought Cuthbert as a smoky waiter set down some brandy. A doctor should never hate illness, for without illness there would be no need for doctors. Sam rubbed his forehead with a limp hand, leaning forward in his creaky leather chair. Oh, Cuthbert, he moaned, I thought I was being put out to pasture, and here I am face to face with a snorting bull. A bull is more Spanish than Italian, said Cuthbert, taking a delicate sip although the two metaphors work well together. Oh, be serious, snapped Sam, lowering his hands and raising his exhausted eyes, his blunt square face twisted. When I think of what's happening there, I get sick, physically sick. I saw a cartoon this morning, a happy African village underneath. A caption, barbarism. Next to it, the same village in flames, underneath civilization. Ah, it's awful. Well... The perils of the position, all that rot. Cuthbert yawned. What are you going to do? Cuthbert gazed at his fingernails. Appeal for peace? Cuthbert sighed. And? Well, I suppose I should fly out to see the League. For what purpose? They have to condemn it as well. I see. Sam paused. I know it's not. No, those are all sensible courses. Splendid steps. What would your father have done? Sam blinked in confusion. My my father was... I mean, what would the men of your father's generation have done? Oh, they'd be sailing down the goddamn Mediterranean in dreadnoughts, making speeches and rousing our rural men, and there'd be another great war. But that's out... He paused. That's no good. Do you think they'd be doing anything before that? Before that step? Oh, for God's sakes, don't take that schoolmistress tone with me. All right. Sam, they'd be negotiating. With Italy? Abyssinia, Both. Hmm. For what end? Give something to each. Like what? Well... "'For Italy, the lifting of the sanctions. "'They'll need rubber again at some point. "'For Abyssinia, the retention of some of their land.' "'Hm. Have you explored this?' "'Yes.' "'With which side?' "'Neither.' "'With the French.' "'The French? Why?' "'Cuthbert resisted the urge to roll his eyes. "'Sam, the French are crucial.' They want to keep Italy away from Germany, so they're still selling oil to Mussolini. They have a strong navy, and it will do Hitler some good to see the British and French acting in concert. Give him pause. I see. We shall have to think on that, Cuthbert shook his head. We have good word that Mussolini is sidling up to Hitler.' Hitler is thinking of providing Il Duce with some of the materials the League is denying him. We have to act now. So, Sam scrunched up his forehead, so if we have to act now, then I'd better get over to France and see Laval, get this thing moving properly. I'm sure that we can save something here. Mussolini needs oil. The Abyssinians need their land, or at least some portion of it. Everyone has to come out looking like roses, but... He said, glancing up suddenly, What about the League? This will all be in the strictest secrecy, said Cuthbert slowly. Sam grinned and winked. Oh, ho! Oh, so we take it to the League later? I would. Sam grinned even wider, then frowned suddenly. Cuthbert, tell me something. What? Why don't you take this damn job? Cuthbert almost laughed. I'd say that I'm afraid of flying. But that would be wrong. I'm not afraid of flying. I'm afraid of falling. Actually, to be completely accurate, I'm terrified of that terrible smack that happens when you hit the ground from a great height. Then he did laugh, waving a hand through the blue air. (laughs) No, not for me. (laughs) "'Not for me at all.' (laughs) Chapter 64 Quentin could see that his wife was flailing, and he was consumed by indecision. To get close to help required accepting the risk of getting struck. To withdraw was heartbreaking.' In the autumn of 1935, Quentin was 59 years old. He had achieved genuine standing in the political community. He understood the English mind. He could speak to the people. He lulled them. He spoke of patience, tolerance, and understanding. England and Europe were like an old married couple or bickering children. The point was not to take sides, but to smile and relax. Human life was intimately bound up with conflict. We cannot pretend to love a world without differences. Let's save some of our affection for heaven. And... and, He had given up fighting with his wife. When they were younger, he now realized some sort of terrible war had been going on under the table. Only one of them could be right. It was the same with Reginald and Wendy. He wanted to say something, but frankly she scared him. She had a tongue like an Amazonian blow-dart. And he didn't want to make things worse for Reginald, now that the second child had arrived. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if the new ball of flesh could somehow feed my wife's emptiness, give her something to get out of bed for? Well, that was unfair. She was out of bed. It wasn't like the terrible twenties. She still came out for... Dinners, parties, and events, but it seemed even worse than her being in bed. Before she had been unhappy and exhausted, and so she had cared for herself to the extent of taking to bed. Now she was unhappy and exhausted, but seemed to have given up on the idea that resting would help. So she came and sat and ate a little and responded to questions, usually within twenty seconds, and turned almost everyone she met into a little nurse for a little while. Quentin was given sympathetic glances because he was solicitous of her when they were in company and refilled her water and offered to order more soup and to take her home early. She smiled and nodded or shook her head, but seemed utterly, utterly vacant. It was worse than being lost. It was like having nothing left to lose. Quentin shied away from this it seemed terminal and he felt in his heart that to solve it he would have to take his wife back to her very crib pick up a warm bottle and start over he was also becoming prone to sudden fits of weeping that was all right for churchill who was a born blubberer but it felt wrong for quentin He was supposed to be made of sterner stuff, not some drippy romantic. Sometimes he wondered how Churchill could be a weeper and a hawk at the same time, but it seemed a puzzle too inconsequential to get into. But Quentin's weeping was accepted in a way that Churchill's was not, because Quentin had a genuine cross to bear. He was considered a good husband by the standards of the day, which is that he was solicitous stiflingly gentle and discreet in whatever else he might be doing. It was rather touching, like watching a senile old man trail his even more senile wife with a napkin. But we're so young, he would think, watching his wife. Ruth's papery skin, wispy hair and sunken eyes, spoke of some devil nourishing itself on her veins, some sucking, twisted thing and Quentin had to forcibly recall that he did not hate her, but her neurasthenia. And the truth was, they were not so young, not any more, and this was becoming quite real to Quentin. He sometimes felt an odd sensation when he was full of power in the house or making a speech that his energy came from his wife somehow. His words had force because they leached words of hers which could now never be spoken. His skin had fat because hers had none. His lips were thick because hers were thin. And they were destined to die apart. That thought was coming to him more often now, more often and more and more keenly. They orbited the world, losing touch drifting apart to die alone in black space. Their paths, which he had always imagined would unite towards the end of things, were in fact curving further and further apart. I can barely see her now, and I am almost gone to her. Quentin sometimes sat in his study racking his brains in a fairly realistic manner, trying to discern how he had wronged her and just why he felt that touch and forgiveness were so beyond their reach. These musings were like little birds scattered by an eagle of sudden anger, as if she has anything to condemn me for. Did I kill her father? Did I end his line?' But thoughts of Ruth's father no longer had the power to rouse his ire. It was all becoming so abominably long ago. The past is a place we can do little more than imagine. Something more recent, something more... Couldn't be Reginald. Two babies, good career, jumpy wife. But then Ruth, of all people, could scarcely blame him for that. It must be. It must be Tom. Quentin had lost track of his youngest son a little. That, Gunther had slithered back somehow, and Tom had taken up with the aging bachelor a picture of the future. Tom had thrown up a perfectly serviceable little business to go roaming about the continent for God knew what purpose. He wrote to his mother. Of course, he was English, but Lord knows about what little impressions of travel, surprise at the size of French bread, little laughter at the antics of foreign children, a vague respect for the utterances of old folk in foreign climes, a sense that they had solved all of life's problems, that they took their time, held their families close, and emptying out of one's soul and future for the sake of movement and sensation. And then, and then... Tom came back. It was for one day, and it woke Ruth up. And then Quentin, who had mourned her sleep for many years, found good cause to regret her awakening. In Ruth's day, travel was a significant thing. She had never grasped that Tom could fly from Paris to his home in under an hour. He had to wait until the harvest was in in order to have a good place to land, but In early December, 1935, Tom came home. He did not stop off to see Catherine. He walked straight up to his mother's room. He had a speech prepared, but it died on his lips. His mother's gaunt head lay against the pillow, turned slightly to one side. Her mouth was open. He could barely discern her thin form under thin covers. Her arms were beside her, he guessed. No books were by her bed. No papers. No needlepoint. No knitting. Nothing. A glass of water on a little cotton doily. It looked dusty. It all looked like a deathbed scene. He said nothing, but walked to her bedside. Her eyes focused slowly on him. Her mouth opened a little. Tom imagined that she might burst into tears and bleed away with salt whatever held her in its grip. He imagined holding her as the past broke away from her in a hot hiss like a shell casing. It would lie smoking on the ground, and they would both observe it and laugh in relief. But nothing happened. She did not move. Her eyes did not well up. Her breath changed a little. Christ, mother! He murmured, his voice thick. He sat down and touched her hair. He could feel the roots. It felt like wispy stubble. It felt like an old doll's skull. She blinked, but slowly and swallowed. Tom, she whispered. Where is father? She did not shrug or shake her head or respond at all. Would you like some tea? No. How are you? Not well. Do you need... want anything at all. Just, just sit, here. Tom felt one of her arms move against his thigh. He almost tore the blankets from her, so it could move more freely, go wherever it wanted to go. How long have you been? She smiled thinly, but did not answer. He took her exposed hand. He felt her bones like the wings of a bird, a dead bird, the revenge of long-ago loss. Tom lifted her hand to his lips and kissed it for a long time. All anger against his mother left his heart. He burst through all her old, endless words like a trapped diver breaking the glassy surface of a serene sea. She is an oracle of our times, he thought, but we have no ears to hear. Mother, he said, and then paused. The endless tears were back. Her dark, recessed eyes stared at him, and he tried to remember the last time he had cried with her. Mother, whispered Tom. Mother. There is going to be a war. Nothing changed in her expression, but Tom could feel it. It felt as if her bones were falling back from her skin, down an endless well or hole, and that her skin only remained because it had not yet noticed the absence of its foundations. There will be a war, and it will be the end of all of us. And I think you have known that for many years. I don't believe in prophecy, except our knowledge of people. There will be a war, and then there will be no more history. But if there were, our own family would figure in it. Not at the center, but not far from it. Not a chapter, perhaps, but not a footnote either. You knew this. You knew all these years. You know it now. Doom is coming. The kind of doom we cannot stand. Because it is not personal. It is not us that will end. We can always stand that. But this is not the end of the story, but of language itself. And I wanted you to know that I know that. And that I am sad. As sad as you. Perhaps we all are, Mother the world is drying up just like your heart. We are all trying to run away from a sky that is falling. Flames will take us. And I am sorry. I am sorry that you and I did not learn enough about each other. That we could not love each other as we should. As we might have. Tom wiped his eyes. His mother's eyelids were lowering slowly. And I think... I think that you got better when I left because father went into politics and so something could be done. But then having father and Reginald in politics in such a time as this is worse than doing nothing. They will bring it closer. They will bring it upon us, although they do not want to. But they are not happy enough to fight for life. They do not love the world enough to save it, or themselves. And so what you thought would save you is in fact killing you. And you know that now. His whisper was as gentle as the slightest wind. And I am sorry that you have to know. How do we live? when we know that the end is coming. And I am breaking all my promises by coming to see you today. But it was... It was like I could hear you calling in my mind as as if you were falling. And, And I can't catch you, Mother. I cannot stop your fall. All I can do is learn about what makes us fall and tell you that I know. Ruth's hand came up to his mouth. Her face turned away. She took a deep, shuddering breath. Gunther, she said. Pardon? asked Tom, leaning forward. Gunther, he's your father. An electric shock ran through him, leaving him shaken and dizzy. He frowned painfully. What? Gunther is your father? Tom? Tom? Tommy? She sobbed then very loudly, and Tom suddenly wondered if anyone else was in the house. His mind flew back over the years. A family friend, disliked by his father, by Quentin? He corrected himself. "'Before the war,' he said. She nodded, staring away and sobbed again. "'Christ! Reginald is only my half-brother!' Tom felt something glad flicker through his heart, striking as it went like the wing-beat of a huge bird. "'Oh, Mom!' he cried. "'What we could have said to each other over the years!' He is such a good man. He has been a better father to you than, than... He has been your only good parent. Ruth sobbed heavily, regularly. He tried to hug her, but the tight blankets constricted her. Instead, Tom hunched forward and gripped her shoulders, pressing his face against her cheek. My God, my God, my God, he murmured, closing his eyes, his soul spinning into dizzy darkness. Her hands came up and touched his wet face. She convulsed with sobs. They lay together for a long, long time. Chapter 65 Cuthbert sent Reginald over with Samuel Hoare to talk to the French Prime Minister Laval about Abyssinia. Reginald's French was excellent, and he claimed to have a good understanding of the Gallic mind. On the airplane over the channel, he prepped Sam. You have to remember, said Reginald, that the French mind is logical and juridical, not empirical, certainly not practical. That's why they're under the sway of Bolshevism at the moment. Bloody Russians! scowled Sam, trying to sip a scotch without spilling it. So, how do we present it? Well, this is what Cuthbert and I have come up with, said Reginald, pulling a piece of paper out of his breast pocket. First, Italy is to get the northern province of Tigray, and also the Ogaden area of Abyssinia. They get certain economic rights in the south. Sam grunted. How much territory? It's about two-thirds of Abyssinia. Good Lord! Why would they ever agree to that? Well, they're left with a third, which is a third more than Mussolini will leave them. Good God, I didn't mean the Wogs, I mean the Italians. What do you mean? It's not a gift from us if they can take it by force. Reginald nodded. Well, obviously, we have to rely on world opinion a little. That's the basis of the League, after all. And we hope to convince the French to stop selling oil and coal to the Italians. They'll demand that we close the Suez,' said Sam promptly. No. No, this has to be old school diplomacy. Reginald smiled, knowing how foolish it looked for him at the age of twenty six, to be telling Samuel Hoare, aged 56, about old-school diplomacy. "'It has to be all under the table. "'Constrictions, nods, winks, subtle but united fronts. "'Nothing in the open, because if it comes out,' Reginald whistled, "'if it comes out, Sam, we're doomed. "'More than us. "'If the public gets a whiff that their government has lost all faith in the League of Nations, "'appeasement is doomed. "'England is doomed. "'All right, no need to get so apocalyptic, young man.' sighed Sam, twirling his drink. Everything is an emergency to the young. Reginald and Sam met with Pierre Laval in an ornate room in the British consulate in Paris. They thought they had come to speak about Abyssinia, but another topic quickly overshadowed it. My government, said Laval shortly, is far less concerned with Mussolini than with Hitler. In June of this year, your government signed a pact with Hitler, allowing him to build thirty- Five ships for every hundred ships that the British have. We registered protests with your government in the strongest possible terms. We heard nothing in return. Sam's face grew dark. Reginald translated. What? Are we to no longer be allowed to sign our own treaties without French approval? Limitation on the German navy was a cornerstone of Versailles. You tore up a treaty for which millions of our young men died without consulting us. Do you know that your ratio for German shipping is generous enough to keep the German shipyards at full capacity for over a decade? We have not come to discuss Versailles or the naval treaty, said Sam through Reginald, but we have. For you are asking us to support your initiatives against Mussolini very well. Let us discuss them. Which aspects of Versailles are the British actually willing to uphold? What has that got to do with anything? It is everything. What if Hitler moves to reoccupy the Rhineland? Do you have any proof that he will? It is a theoretical question, which is not so theoretical. What does it matter? If Hitler reoccupies the Rhineland, he will build fortifications. So, we will no longer be able to march into Germany unopposed. He then has no need to fear a two-front war. He can begin to move against Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Russia. We will no longer have a dagger pressed against the back of Germany. What will your government do if the Germans attempt to reoccupy the Rhineland? Why are we talking about this? Because, Monsieur Hoare, if you are asking us to be strong against the aggression of Mussolini, then you must be equally strong against the aggression of Hitler. We do not want to alienate Mussolini and then be left alone. To face Germany. Hoare scowled, speaking rapidly. Reginald said, Surely Monsieur Laval remembers that our two great nations have signed a solemn treaty in Locarno in 1925, to the effect that, if either of us were threatened, each will come to the aid of the other. Of course, said Laval. However, the key question is this. Does the unilateral abrogation of a treaty which results in a clear threat to France constitute an attack? Please clarify. If the Germans march into the Rhineland, France is not being attacked but, we then lose our greatest defense against Germany. We become vulnerable and Germany becomes almost impregnable. Would that constitute an attack on France? That situation would have to be analyzed when it occurred. The situation has just been presented. Hmm. What would France do in such a situation? That would very much depend on British support. Ah, so if we supported you, you would counterattack the Germans. If we... If France were supported by the British, it would be a far more viable option. So you would invade. With British support, we would be in a far better position to invade. Hoare laughed. Pierre, you are dancing. England could never support military action by France against Germany. If France did not actually plan to take that action, threats are always useless. And what if France goes Bolshevik in the meantime? Would England still be bound to support a communist state against a fascist state? It would be nonsense. Any government making such commitments would be tossed out of office. So, you would not act to defend France if the Germans went into the Rhineland? Yes. We would have to evaluate that at the time. What if they went in without weapons? What if there was a plebiscite run by the League of Nations, as in the Saar region, where 90% of the population wanted to go back to Germany? Would it be all right then? That would be non-military. Who knows? You cannot determine these things beforehand. You certainly cannot. You will not make a commitment, yet you ask us to. Laval thrust himself back in his chair, turning his face away. Reginald almost expected him to spit. Then he muttered, You will get no aid from France against Italy, and we shall have to pick our allies far more carefully in the future. Pierre, smiled Sam, don't get so cross. You know that if France takes a firm stand against German aggression, then England is bound by the Locarno Pact to come to your aid. It all depends on you. But we can't be more resolute than you are. It makes no sense. All we can do is support your decisions. So... England will come to France's aid if France responds with arms to any remilitarization of the Rhineland. Hoare nodded. Yes, I believe that I can give you assurances that we shall do everything in our power to aid your fight against any German remilitarization of the Rhineland. Sam had to ask Reginald to translate this remarkable statement twice before he did so. Reginald did not relish returning this little tidbit to Cuthbert. After the English Declaration of Support, the discussion flowed much more smoothly. The Abyssinians were duly carved up, and the hoare Laval Pact was transcribed with copies to go for ratification to the foreign offices of each government. As expected, Cuthbert was enraged. That arrogant, pompous little shit! He shouted when Reginald passed on the news of Sam's commitment to Laval. What is he talking about? The Treaty of Le Carnet. Oh, to hell with that! That only comes into effect if Germany invades France. What, if they take back the Rhineland? It's their own backyard. That's like us marching back into Yorkshire. He thinks we'd go to war over that. I had to translate... Oh, don't be a junior little weasel. "'said Cuthbert with heavy contempt. "'No one is accusing you. "'God damn it! "'God damn it all to hell! "'Why?' said Reginald, "'then realized his voice was quavering. "'He cleared his throat and tried again. "'Why is this so important?' "'Because I just had lunch today "'with Hermann Göring, "'one of Hitler's insiders, "'ex-pilot in charge of the German Air Force.' He asked me straight. He said, If France attacked Germany, would England come to her aid? What did you say? I didn't fuck around. I told the truth. We have no soldiers. We could perhaps apply some economic sanctions for what they're worth. I didn't say that last bit. Oh... "'said Reginald, sitting heavily in his chair. "'I think he was probing our commitment to Locarno. "'He said that if Germany isn't given the chance to expand, "'it will burst. "'Like a capped kettle,' he said. "'Christ, his breath! "'So what if they want to take back the Rhineland "'so they can go east without France waltzing in through the back door? "'So? "'So what? "'That's... That would be awful. Nonsense. Austria has three million Germans. They're all dying to get sucked back up by the fucking fatherland. Would you shed your blood to stop them going home? And they've pretty much given up on democracy anyway. Reginald's face was pale. What if they go further east? They'll trip over Stalin, who will know how to handle them. They go east, Stalin will meet them halfway. So Hitler will forever have an unstable and warring eastern front. It's beautiful. Fascism and communism cancel each other out and leave the West in peace. Cuthbert shrugged and smiled. Or perhaps they want a few colonies back. Hell, I'd give them India myself. It would be pleasant to see how Gandhi would fare under Hitler's tender heels. He might miss us a little, then, as they pulled his soppy, beady eyes out. I, my only point, Reginald, the extremely wet-eared, is that none of Hitler's territorial ambitions have to interfere directly with British material interests. We can't fight him now. Even if we had superior force, we don't have the population control he enjoys. We can't shoot people if they don't skip with flowers to the front. You get five bombs in the Strand, we'd have a revolution. So, we let him have the Rhineland. He goes east and starts an endless sparring match with Stalin. I have no difficulty swallowing that, though, as always, I remain open to suggestions. "'What if? What if Hitler is weaker than he looks?' "'Yes. We could oppose him over the Rhineland, and and he might fall.' "'He might,' said Cuthbert, reflectively. "'Although I think that the Night of the Long Knives "'put a stop to any nonsense of that kind. "'We'd need hard evidence, "'and then it would still be a very difficult decision.' But we should stay open to it. You never know. Cuthbert jumped up suddenly with one of his occasional bursts of energy. But that's all nonsense. Right now we have more pressing issues. Enemies closer at hand. We have to get rid of Sam. Rid of Sam? Oh, Reginald, you should know about this. We can't have ministers running around making commitments to our allies. We can't have them interpreting complex documents like Locarno and broadcasting simplistic conclusions. What kind of goddamned sovereignty is that? And besides, the interpretation of Locarno is our business, not his. Cuthbert sighed. Uh, It always distresses me to no end when they forget that they're just figureheads. He tried to hedge, sure, perhaps, but then he jumped the gun, so to speak, because he wanted France to be on our side with Mussolini. Shouldn't he have, what, on the first meeting, we're so poor we can't afford to fly back? Delay! Delay! Sam makes a commitment to Laval now. Laval is probably gone in four months. It's French politics, after all. But Sam's commitment will hang on as all the governments roll through. Cuthbert smiled. Everyone thinks that England makes a pact with France. Not so. Good God, what a horror. The fact is that a certain English government makes a pact with a certain French government. No one likes to remember that. But that's not. The legality of it, is it? Well, that's very French, very juridical. No, we talk of eternal pacts because we're children and sentimental. But it's nonsense, like all childish things. Some communist government takes over in France, and there are many who believe that the Popular Front is really the Communist Front. No, France is dying on the vine. Everyone in the business sector is taking their capital out of France. Why invest just to have your investment nationalized? The cycle has begun. Less investment means the franc will plummet. More unemployment. More violence. This virus has struck before. There's no need to be blind to the signs. So, Reginald frowned. Sorry, this is a lot for someone so new to all this. Cuthbert grinned. But you have a talent for this nonsense, I can tell. If I were sentimental, I might say that you remind me of me when I was your age. But you don't. I was never such a handsome lad. but oh, thanks, but—Sam? Cuthbert leaned over him, his broad face eclipsing the single electric light. Oh, here— is where you must choose your sides, my protégé. Here is the line dividing light and dark. I know your answer, but I love the question. Reginald felt acutely uncomfortable with his boss's face hanging so low over his armchair. He wanted to wriggle back into the leather and hide for a decade or so. His eyes don't look so tired now, thought Reginald in strange terror. It was true. Cuthbert's eyes were wide, electric, sensual. Reginald tried to laugh. What are you talking about, Cuthbert? You know. Do you want to know how I shall rid myself of Sam? Do I? wondered Reginald. He suddenly thought of his wife, of her sneering face. He felt that he needed some sort of power in his life, something to shut her up. But at the same time, in his mind's eye, her scornful mouth was belied by the sight of her sad and tired eyes. Then he thought of his daughters, their bright eyes, tight hands, apple cheeks. If Sam is a danger to England. Then he scowled at himself. Too sentimental by half, old chap. You'll be selling children's books next. But he did want to know what Cuthbert would say next. Why? He frowned. It was like being in a dream where he had to run, but gravity was mostly absent, and every step bounced him into the sky, more high. Then forward, and something with suction cups shot forward from behind, hanging beneath him with an open mouth and dripping teeth. Some muscle is unused, some air cannot get through. He remembered his early childhood asthma, the endless frustration of being in bed while the world had fun beyond the windows and far away. He recalled Tom's face as he rose from the backyard trench almost twenty years before. His face flushed with triumph, sycamore leaves clinging to his jumper after his legendary bombing run. After that, we always had to post soldiers facing backwards, thought Reginald with sudden old anger. All my strategies were useless. He tried to shake off his historical ramblings. Concentrate! Yes, he said to Cuthbert's low, lunar features. The word had come out of him without thinking. Cuthbert smiled, then rose and went to sit at his desk. He dialed his telephone. "'Al,' he said, "'get in here and be quick about it.' He sat back, then smiled brightly at Reginald. Reginald blinked in surprise at Cuthbert's transformed features. "'How their heels fly when they think they're being fired,' he said. "'A man came barreling into the room, clutching his chest comically. "'Yes, Mr. Rathbone?' "'Cuthbert threw an envelope across the desk. "'Copy this. Drop it off at the Times. "'Anonymously.' "'The man nodded, snatched up the envelope, then vanished. "'Cuthbert laughed. (laughs) "'Exit one, Minister.' "'Stage left! What's that?' Cuthbert nodded. "'The pact is about to become public. "'And can you imagine having a foreign secretary so cynical "'that he's willing to champion the authority of the League of Nations "'while at the same time pursuing his own secret diplomacy on the side?' "'We are in for a most edifying moral spectacle.' A hypocritical crowd tearing apart a hypocritical leader. And it was true. Within three weeks, Sam was gone. Cuthbert had achieved his aim. He had gotten rid of Sam. He was even less pleased, though, with the man who took his place. Chapter 66 Mussolini had robbed Quentin of sleep. It was most irritating. As Mussolini pushed further and further into Abyssinia, it felt, to Quentin, as if Abyssinia was some kind of kingdom of sleep, where every honest Englishman went nightly to receive his standard ration of dreams. And as the Italians cut into the ancient heart of the dark continent, sleep fled for Quentin. The blacks, scattered, gassed and flaming, and so the dark scattered for Quentin, and there was no more peace twixt dusk and dawn. And wouldn't you just know it, as I fall, my wife arises again. Quentin had not expected it. He had, in his heart, imagined her sinking further and further into skeletal absence, filling up less and less of the bed, until Catherine drew the covers back one morning to reveal nothing more than a wisp of hair and an empty nightgown. And then the house would be haunted, he would think with a shudder. When they were very young and newly married before the war, Ruth had laughed at his insistence that he would get married if she died. I'll haunt you, she cried, shaking little pink fists. I'll haunt you. His whole life unrolled in the dark. Every day he moved forward in time. Every night he moved back, back to times which could never be reclaimed, times he loved, before the war particularly, but which were barred from long lingering by regret and a strange, striking guilt. Going back to a formal picnic in 1912, where everyone was dressed up, the crusts had all been removed from the sandwiches, the gaiety unforced, and the future a steady, easy climb. Ruth's father was there, and her four brothers, and their girlfriends. And at the last thought he wondered all of a sudden, where were those young women? Still alive, surely. Are they as she is? Do they mourn all that was, is, and is to be? Or do they sigh... Wipe away a tear and say, Oh, he was such a nice young man. I forget his face, but I knew him just before the war. His thoughts went around and around. There was no fascism back there. No war. No communism. The world had been solved. And then, striking like some evil withered arm from the Middle Ages. 1914. "'And who was I in those days?' Quentin wondered. "'Never such an idealist, never as Ruth was with a tender heart, "'a gasp in the face of bad things, a wide, strong, silly smile. "'She used to say that I was a bloodhound, "'that I would always track my prey and bring it down, "'but would never want what I had, "'that I was the kind of man who judged every action "'based on the possible consequences, "'which would make me effective but unhappy.' Practical in the short run, impractical in the long. But have I really been impractical? I have a voice in world affairs she keeps to her bed. It was an old, old temptation, and he almost always succumbed. He felt, deep in his heart, that either he or Ruth could be right. Not both, not at the same time. It's the same as Tom and Reginald, he thought, and then chased the thought away. They were opposed at some elemental level. She thinks I can be a good person only if I listen to her. I think she can only be an effective person if she listens to me. But it was more than that, deeper than that. It was more like a world view. Is there a God, or isn't there a God? Quentin smiled, despite himself, in the dark. He had not thought of his wife's atheism in some time, years. She had papered over her unbelief so well that he had forgotten that her facade was only paper. She has been a proper little Christian wifey, he thought, smiling faintly. Quentin turned over, trying to find the right balance of eiderdown coverage. And she was gone for a long time, and that was all right, because I had to make my mark, and could not manage her. He recoiled faintly at the phrase manage, then swore softly aloud, as if she gave me any other choice. A familiar anger arose in his breast. Quentin honestly, honestly felt that his wife was trying to manipulate him with every breath, Every breath, every thought was the same, like some monotonous jungle drumming, a faint rhythm of intergenerational war. You are a bad husband, she said, or spun from her little lair by the top of the stairs. You are a bad husband, and I shall not love you until you become a good husband. But that would never work. That would never do. It was her duty to love him. It had been her vow, her pledge. God would judge her harshly no doubt, which was why she was an atheist. No, he would not humiliate himself by acceding to her every whim, by begging and scraping for scraps of her good favor. He was, he was stronger than that. And so it went all night. Quentin spoke to his wife, sparingly at best, but he thought of her all, all, all the time, And when, in January of 1936, she came once more down to breakfast, he was stunned. He was much less stunned when Tom joined them a half an hour into a civil but silent meal, putting his usual great strain on both civility and silence. Chapter 67. The previous day, Tom had stayed and talked with his mother for most of the afternoon, before going for a long walk. After the revelation that he was not his father's son, a strange formulation, but the only way he could really think of it as yet, Ruth had cried for a long time. Tom had held her and rocked her and fought his own terror because... He had not known whether she was crying because she had something to release or because she was releasing life. It would have been instructive for him to have been in the car with Quentin and Reginald that day when Reginald broke down. But, of course, if he had been in the car, it never would have happened. The Spencer men were nothing, if not vain. So as his mother cried, he was on the alert for false tears or tears which went too deep to be recovered from. Men cry on their deathbeds because they can no longer undo the wrongs they have done. It is a farewell with endless regret. The endlessness of the regret makes the farewell necessary. They would rather die than apologize. This is why hell is so extreme. It is the only threat which can work against a lifetime of wrong. Tom had spent a good deal of his childhood watching his mother cry. It was part of his weather. A self-pitying scatter of rain would sometimes descend, sometimes from a blue sky, sometimes from clouds, and sometimes from the ceiling. But it was a kind of exhausting crying. It was a crying which ended up in sad little sobs, a snuffle, and a sleep which did nothing to restore. It was an emptying out, like Wendy's anger. But this was different. When Ruth cried that afternoon, it was a strong, pulsing, meaty, earthy crying. It was a release. It was traversed by words, truthful words, and flowed towards a beautiful sleep and a different waking. Tom let her cry, because he knew that his mother had a tendency of becoming irritated if reasons were requested for her crying. And years passed, Tom had been bewildered. He cried, but he always knew why. His mother cried, and he never knew why. He would ask her, stroking her hair with his tiny hands, in love, in fear, but she would never respond. She would cry harder. He rarely pressed her, when he did, as puberty approached, she would hold up her hands. Then she would sob loudly. He would press on. Then her head would jerk up and her eyes would flash and her face would twist and her mouth would snarl. There were to be no questions. They had never been allowed. And as he had gotten older, he had thought that it was never designed for him to know. Not consciously designed, but Her grievous wounds could never be seen. He would change her dressing, eyes averted, but never look down, never see. Because what if there were no wounds? That thought had occurred to him after puberty, when he grew from loving leech-feeder to aggressive questioner. The great question of stunted manhood. What the hell is wrong with my mother?' began to occur to him with ever-increasing irritability. It had caused great strain in their relationship. He began to think that she was faking it, that she was not sick, that she was using her father's death. And his lips would curl at the thought that she could use that as a cover for her own acts, her own... her own... what?! but before being told about Gunther and his mother, Tom had never known. He could not cry. He was too amazed. Too amazed. And too relieved. After a long, long time, Ruth began to speak. Her voice caught. Her breath seemed to choke her. But bit by bit, the story came out. It was before the war. Before, when I was... He was in the German army. Gunther? Yes. Stationed near here, some army exchange program. He wanted to learn English. (laughs) Improve it. I met him in a shop. My God, the man has the most passionate integrity. I could feel him even now moving across the world, like a spot of light. He was devoted to Germany at first. He and you... (laughs) Quentin would talk about nationalism. And they agreed a lot more in those days. Quentin traveled. Oh my God, he would be gone. I can't talk about what that meant. I was young and. and your father is not a sexual man. Oh. Never mind, I'm making excuses. What happened was. It was less than six months since Reginald was born. Your father, damn it, Quentin, had been away for months. It felt like months. Gunther threw up his commission, renounced his citizenship. He was in tears. He had learned about the war. The war that was to come. He was in a panic. I was not so afraid. "'I've always loved the sight of a passionately moral man. "'He was like a preacher, but colder, harder. "'Not really a panic, I suppose. "'We had been attracted to each other. "'He was nothing like Quentin. "'Quentin gets impatient about questions. "'Gunther can talk all night about truth and lies, right and wrong. "'He was much more confused in those days. "'He went in every direction.' Madness. He swept me up? No. No, that's nonsense. I wanted him. I wanted to touch something pure. I imagined running away with him to South America, Pamburg, somewhere. You know, when you do wrong, great wrong, you have to prepare for a long Time lay the foundations with great care you only see it brick by brick but it's building something you want a palace of sin oh another wave of sobs slammed into her tom did not blink this was an entirely new voice for his mother he was weeping about germany about a war he said was coming about what it would mean to Europe, to all of us. Do you know that Quentin never really noticed that we were attracted to each other, Gunther and me? I hated him for that. I think sometimes that it started out as a flirtation to to see if Quentin would notice that I was attractive. You can't touch... (laughs) But he never did. I hated him for that. And then, and then, I saw him see it one day. It was so predictable. I couldn't help it. I arched my back. Gunther was teaching me something about croquet standing behind. It was so ridiculous. I arched my back. Good God, I almost fainted. I still thought it was a kind of play, like flirting with a brother when you're twelve. Harmless practice. I was a mother now, after all, and not about to run off. And I saw that Quentin saw. It was impossible not to. So obvious these questions and answers after so many years of thinking. He saw and he did nothing. Thought that I was a toddler biting for attention. Every time. Oh, God, Tom, you don't know. Yes, you do. But you've given up. You can. A wife cannot. If you ask Quentin for attention he thinks you were childish, but if you let him be, he never comes to you. Ruth's voice broke. He never comes to you. He travels and goes to his club and meets with clients. And I had my children, but I was... A woman's heart needs watering. I was becoming a desert... She laughed weakly. I always thought I was a dessert. But I was a desert. And I could not understand what I was supposed to do with my life. I was a tomboy once. Don't stare, it's true. Four brothers. Even my aunts were tomboys. I can't. I could never do that cake and gossip nonsense. Women make very little sense to me. Men? Men, too? Except my family. I understood them. Why? Tom cleared his throat. He saw no point in trying to be brave. Why did you marry Quentin? Ruth nodded slowly. I don't know, she whispered. He was dashing? Every man I felt tender towards was uncertain in some way that's the worst thing about youth everyone who is confident is wrong because you know nothing it's the great choice of every woman and oh god how many of us live to rue it a man that other women will envy the the single prize of a single day everyone else wanted him (laughs) I was weak The men that I was drawn to were awkward, poor, passionate. It's such an unholy curse. Do you want your children to have a great father or great opportunities? The world does not seem to worship both at the same time. Why choose? And how can you, just after you've learned to tie your own shoes? It's all right, mother, said Tom. He actually had to remember to use... Her sobriquet, not her name. The poor in heart, or the poor in money. But I have not been right. That is why nature should give us our wombs later in life. A man rich in spirit will become rich in money. A man poor in spirit will lose. It's not. It's not absolute, but it's true enough. When I was young, all I wanted were absolutes. I never settled for true enough. No one ever taught me how. And your... Quentin was gracious. He was gracious. Deferential. He made me feel like a glass rose. I thought it was respect, but... But it turns out He just thought I was breakable, fragile, see-through, obvious. And how can something obvious compete with subtle things like business, the stock market, and world politics? I have been keeping too many secrets, I suppose, in order to draw him to me, to rouse his interest. But I can do nothing to rouse his interest. He. He made made his mind up about me on our second date. Ruth paused then. Her face contracted, the muscles rippling, and it seemed to Tom as if she were falling down through old water. Like an Ophelia who lived too long, he thought, then hated the thought. What did Gunther do afterwards? Oh, he... She started nonchalantly, then her voice broke once more. He wanted to take me away? Your brother? What could I do? How could I leave? Like some dismal Russian wife, trapped by a twenty-pound ball and chain. That's why they nail you down. That's the entire purpose. Why did he have to pay me any attention? Oh, but I chose him. But the envy of others, the need to eat... Who says, marry for love? Tom brushed a tear away. Everyone, he whispered. His mother's face grew very still. She turned to him, then said, Oh, Tom, don't consciously try to kill me. Who, outside of fairy tales? Or who says, here's how to marry for love? Or if you marry for love, the food will follow. Or if you give your children an education by marrying a man you do not love, they will become educated and marry someone they do not love. Have you seen what it's like for Reginald? That woman is a real witch. Her eyes were wandering. Tom said, Mother, you. He left me, she said simply. He resigned his commission and went to go. And live in London. Tried to talk to Churchill about the coming war. Oh, it was horrible. I was stung. I made fun of him any way I could and said he was a crackpot. Her hand flew to her mouth and her eyes widened. I destroyed his credibility. You don't know how a woman can do such things. How much power we have in the case of seriousness. Men rely on us so much for judgment they judge ideas and consequences we judge people and let them be i mocked gunther to quentin to churchill you met churchill asked tom yes yes twice i destroyed gunther's reputation insinuated that he drank that he was perverted a degenerate all the while i was pregnant I rushed into your father's arms that night. I couldn't stand the suspense. But it was all so (laughs) useless. All it bought me was eight months. By the last I knew, you hung so quietly in me, so quiet, so soft, as I would have been in Gunther's arms. But he was around during the war i remember it so clearly yes he forgave me he loved me i fought him before the war i i made his speeches about the war about the germans laughable i wrote letters to people i i i did my part to bring it about more than my part And my father was so brave, Tom, so brave. They didn't know when they were going, what it meant. No one knew. But he wrote to me once about this. It was in his last letter, the one before his... Really last letter. He said, if you see Gunther, tell him we are terribly sorry because they had mocked him as well. Women rule these things. God help the man who crosses the coven. So you see, Tom, I did my part to kill him, to kill them. My God, whispered Tom. And everyone was so kind to me. Even Gunther, my God, what a heart the man has. To forgive me when I did so much to thwart his cause. So much against him. <sighs> and really, after they all died by men, what was there of me left to love? I don't understand it. I really don't. What does that mean, to love someone despite what they do? And now, now I am almost 50, and I lie here like a toad. And still, he writes, he writes through Catherine. It was always that way. Catherine knows? Oh, she loved that man. He spoke to her respectfully right from the beginning. He charmed her. Oh, my God, whispered Tom, his eyes widening. Poor Reginald. Poor... Well, yes. Yes, I suppose so. But I was more than prepared to love him. It wasn't impossible. But he fought and kicked and... I am not... Gunther, I cannot love someone despite their actions. I, perhaps, Gunther loved you because of your love for him. What? What? I, you love him, even now, even here. Oh, (laughs) don't start it on Catherine's nonsense. Affairs are for the young. Not an affair, mother. It's been twenty five years. You are very loyal for a fling. Tom saw sudden violence in her eyes until she realized that he had used the word fling, ironically. He was the love of my life. He is. Yes. He is. Her face crumpled. But it killed my father, Tom. It killed everyone. I know it's not true. I know. But it is. You only have to sin in your heart. But what if I had supported him? What if I had left your... Quentin? (sighs) Do you know that I have the house that Günther and I would have lived in designed in my mind down to the last detail? It's a house that never was. (gasps) Twenty-five years in the past. And I know what the faceplates on the light switches look like. What your brothers and sisters look like. Their names, likes and dislikes. How differently Gunther would have aged if I were cooking for him. Tom held up his hand. It's happening again. There was a thump. From downstairs. Both heads jerked up. Throwing masks aside is very dangerous. Most often they just get lost. Throwing aside is throwing away. Their expressions froze, their tongues halted mid sentence, but no more sounds came. Where is Catherine? whispered Tom. Market. So, So, Mother, it is happening again. Gunther and Churchill are trying to stop the next war. There was a long pause. Tom did not try to fill it. And you? asked Ruth finally. I am helping them. She nodded. It seemed inevitable, after all. The past, unexamined, is the future unrelenting.